toddler's ABCs. Athletics beyond coronavirus. Hillel Cutler's ABCs. Athletics beyond coronavirus. Hillel Ascribe Welcome to Hillel Cutler's ABCs, Athletics Beyond Coronavirus. I'm Hillel Cutler, a journalist who specializes in both healthcare and sports. In this era of the coronavirus and the precautions that are helping to save our lives by limiting the spread of the disease, sports leagues have reopened in limited form. I interview people who are exhibit A of this sports experiment, the athletes, the coaches, the broadcasters, and the executives. I'm interested in the effect on fans. In most reopened leagues, few or no fans can watch in person. On this podcast, we discuss the very real here and now, and also the day after, when the lives that we prefer to live can resume, and when the sports we love return in earnest, with fans filling the seats. I welcome your comments, including suggestions for interviews. Just email me at hk at hilleldescribecommunications.com. Tuesday, November 3rd, will be election day when Americans will choose a president, one third of the Senate, well, 435 seats in the House of Representatives, along with state legislatures and local positions. Every once in a while, someone wins office and serves in Congress who previously played professional sports. With me today to discuss elections, Congress, and sports are Steve Largent and Tom McMillan. Steve Largent played wide receiver for, for 14 seasons in the NFL, all with the Seattle Seahawks and is a member of the Pro Football Hall of Fame. A Republican, he served four terms in the House representing Oklahoma. Tom McMillan played 11 seasons in the NBA, six of them with the Atlanta Hawks. A Democrat, he served three terms in the House representing Maryland. They are not the only pro athletes to serve in Washington. In 1961, Mo Udall, a Democrat, began the first of his 15 terms as a congressman from Arizona. He had played one year in the NBL, which became the NBA. Wilmer Vinegar Ben Mizell, a Republican from North Carolina, served three terms in the House. He had pitched 10 years in the major leagues. Jack Kemp, a Republican from New York, served nine terms in the House before becoming the Cabinet Secretary of the Housing and Urban Development Department in the George Herbert Walker Bush administration. He had played quarterback for 10 years in the NFL and the AFL. Bill Bradley, a Democrat, was a three-term senator representing New Jersey. He played 13 years in the NBA and was selected for the Basketball Hall of Fame. Jim Bunning, a Republican from Kentucky, served six terms in the House, then two terms in the Senate after pitching for 17 years in the major leagues, and he was selected for the Baseball Hall of Fame. In the early 2000s, a Republican, a three-term congressman from Nebraska, was Tom Osborne, who played two seasons in the NFL. He's better known as the University of Nebraska's longtime head coach and is a member of the College Football Hall of Fame. Heath Shuler, a Democrat from North Carolina, served three terms in the House after playing quarterback in the NFL for four years. John Runyon, a Republican representing New Jersey for two terms in the House after playing right tackle for 14 seasons in the NFL. And that brings us to this election in which four sports figures are running. Two freshman members of the House are running for re-election. They are Anthony Gonzalez, a Republican from Ohio, who played wide receiver for five years for the Indianapolis Colts and Colin Altred, a Democrat from Texas, who played linebacker for four seasons with the Tennessee Titans. In Utah, Republican Burgess Owens would be a House newcomer if he wins what is now a very tight race. 
he played 10 years as a defensive back in the NFL, most, mostly with my childhood team, the New York Jets. Later won a Super Bowl with the Oakland Raiders. And another newcomer, if he wins, would be Tommy Tuberville, an accomplished NCAA head football coach, most prominently at Auburn. Uh, Tuberville is a Republican from Alabama who's running from the Senate. Now that we've completed the sports congressional roll call, I'd like to say Steve Largen and Tom McMillan, welcome to Hillel Cutler's ABC's Athletics Beyond Coronavirus. Well, thank you, Hillel. Good to be with you again. It's terrific to talk to you guys. And I want to start by asking both of you, what are your earliest memories of Election Day as a child where you grew up, whether your parents went to vote and you went with them, if you watched election coverage on TV the night of the election. How far back do you go? What do you remember? You want to start, Steve? Um, well, I think uh, my earliest recollection, and I was not a very political person until I ran for office. Um, and so I think the earliest I remember is probably um, when Reagan was elected president. And that's not very long ago, but I don't feel like it's very long ago. <laughs> Maybe it is, but uh, uh, that's the earliest recollection I have of uh, any, any interest at all in, in politics. What was it about that election that grabbed you? Um, I think it was just the idea that uh, here's a guy that was a, a, a former uh, actor who's, uh, who has been, you know, uh, the governor of uh, California. Now he's trying to run for president. And uh, I just always think that I always thought that uh, Reagan came, uh, came across as a very likable guy. Did your parents talk politics at home? Did they have that sort of oh, my, my, Well, I, you know, maybe they did, but I was busy watching the football game and I didn't take part in the politics of it. I, I don't even know if my parents or grandparents were Republicans or Democrats or uh, even voted, uh, you know, a lot. So, um, yeah, I, 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 I came from an apolitical uh, family and uh, we didn't we really didn't talk uh, politics very much. What about you, Tom? Um, I grew up in a small town in Pennsylvania. Uh, my father was ostensibly a Republican. My mom was a Democrat. But hmm. when Jack Kennedy ran, because we were Catholic, of course, uh, he got my father's vote. So we talked politics, not not a lot. I, You know, it was um, when I was in high school, it was all high school kids. I'm working on school and playing sports. And so... I can't say that I was that political, although I ran for student body president when I was in high school. But when I got to the University of Maryland, that's when uh, all the Vietnam protests started occurring. And, and we had tear gas on campus from the riots. And it was, uh, you know, I started to pay attention to it. Uh, interestingly, President Nixon appointed me to the President's Council on Physical Fitness and Sports. I was the youngest presidential appointee everyone I was 17 years old so I spent time around the White House and around the Congress and so forth and that really imbued in me a, an interest in politics uh, but you know I wasn't really partisan I was just interested in politics at that point in time. Do you remember what it was about politics that spoke to you in some way? Well, I was recruited by a former United States Senator to come to Maryland, Joe Tidings and he got me very involved. Matter of fact, I worked in the cloakroom, the Senate cloakroom, one mm. summer when I was in college. 
and that was a great experience. Matter of fact, that that was the that was the summer that Joe Biden had just entered the Senate. He just lost his family. You know, his wife and his daughter were killed in a car accident, and uh, so that goes way back. I had that experience working in the um, in the Senate, and I think that just kind of lit an interest in me that I wanted to to do something involved in. Mm. You know, it just so happens that a few days ago, I picked up a book trying to find something to read over the weekend, a book from my shelf that had been sitting there for years. Um, it's called The Making of the President in 1960, written by Theodore White. He ended up winning Pulitzer Prize for writing that book. And it's about the 1960 race through the perspectives of seven of the leading candidates, including, of course, Kennedy and Nixon. And one line struck me, one paragraph struck me early on which I'll read to you, a couple of sentences. It's, it starts off with Kennedy at, his compound, at the family's compound in Massachusetts, waiting, essentially waiting on the day of election day to see what results, what will be the results, just before he goes out to vote in Boston. Uh, and then, and sorry, and then goes out to the compound. And here's what White writes. He writes, no bands play on election day, no troops march, no guns are readied, no conspirators gather in secret headquarters. The noise and the blare, the bands and the screaming, the pageantry and the oratory of the long fall campaign fade on election day. All the planning is over, all effort spent. Now the candidates must wait. When I read that, the very first thing I thought of as I digested how beautifully he wrote that series of sentences, the very first thing I thought of was Tom, when you and I spoke in 2012 and you told me about your first race for Congress, which went down to the wire, and it, it was such a, um, an interesting story and profound in a way about not taking anything for granted. And I'm wondering if you can, for people who do not read the article, if you can sum up what you remember of that, of that day on election day. Well, I, I announced for Congress while I was still playing for the Washington Bullets. So I played a whole season as a candidate for Congress. I'm sure, Steve, you can appreciate that's a pretty crazy thing to do. But I did it at the advice of Bill Bradley. And I played the whole season. I finished the season, had my primary immediately, which wasn't a big deal. And then I went into the general election. And uh, you know, I was up going into the final weekend. And then it, it tightened up. And... Uh, you know, on election day, I just decided I was going to, you know, stay out into the polls right till they closed. Uh, my opponent actually uh, went home early and did not campaign all the way to the end. And uh, funny enough, I only won that race by 424 votes. Uh, matter of fact, on election night at 10 o'clock at night, Dan Rather had said we lost. And then these black precincts started counting and we were up by... Uh, uh, a sizable lead uh, at about 11.30 that night, but we had a whole lot of absentee ballots coming in. And over the next three weeks, those absentee ballots, as traditionally they do, they skewed Republican. And my lead just shrank and shrank and shrank and shrank until, you know, it was finally over three weeks later and, and won by 424 votes. The point of that is that you never, you never, uh, every vote counts. Every vote's important, even congressional races. I probably shook 100, 200, 300 extra hands that day. That might have made the difference. 
Uh, and so that, that point really, you know, came out, came out very clear to me. Steve, Steve, did you have any experiences in your either primary races or congressional races on election day that stick out in your mind as being particularly memorable, whether they were close the way Tom described or something else about the day that just sort of leaves this imprint on you all these years later? Um, I think that um, my, my experience was that I was in a heated uh, primary when I first ran uh, back in 1994. And I was uh, really ambivalent about running for office uh, until the last minute. And so I, I, it was my wife that really uh, pushed me over the edge and, and into this race. Um, Cause I, I really, um, you know, I, I, it wasn't what I wanted to do. But uh, so I ended up committing about two weeks before, well, it was probably a month before the primary. Uh, and so in that month period of time, I had to rally the troops and get people out there and, you know, make bumper stickers and all kinds of stuff, signs and stuff like that. But I was running against uh, uh, a current mayor, a former mayor of uh, Tulsa, and my district was basically just the city of Tulsa. Uh, but then I, I was running against a sitting uh, uh, Oklahoma representative and people who had a lot more experience than I did. Uh, but I just went out there and just told people, you know, I was running and, and here's why I was running. And uh, we, we were able to rally uh, a lot of people, um, particularly in South Tulsa, because that was the heavily um, uh, Republican base for this particular district. And uh, we went, you know, door to door, knocking on, on doors and telling people why I was running and asking for their support and all the kind of, you know, general things that you do uh, in a campaign. But uh, my real race, uh, that first election that I had, was uh, my primary. And you know, let me say this too, you know, when I was in high school, I never thought about running for student council. Uh, I was playing football and going to class and, you know, trying to date girls. Uh, but, um, you know, so I, I, I didn't do any of that stuff and never really had any interest in it at all. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I really wasn't a very good student. Uh, but, but, you know, I managed to graduate. Um, but uh, this, this race uh, turned into a real competitive race in the primary. And uh, I ended up winning. In, in Oklahoma, you have to have 50% of the votes plus one uh, to avoid a runoff. And I just assumed that I would have a runoff with six people in the primary. But uh, I was able to avoid a runoff and uh, went right into the general election. And uh, there I found myself running against a guy who was um, a, uh, he, he had never uh, run for office either. Uh, and he was running for the, under the Democrat ticket and we were running against one another. And I don't think either one of us really knew what we were doing, but uh, we had a, uh, a good friendly battle uh, to the end. And uh, I ended up winning, I think I had like 60 or 62% of the vote. Um, but uh, at that time, um, this district that I was running in was turning Republican. It, it was not traditionally a Republican district, but uh, it was turning Republican uh, in, in a dramatic fashion. Uh, so I, it was definitely uh, mine to lose after I won the primary. So it was, uh, it was very competitive. Uh, we talked about a lot of issues. 
Um, and uh, it was it was really kind of a, a fun thing for me to get a a, a camp put a, put a, a team together uh, of people that were uh, working with me and uh, and and covering the the, the base here in, in Tulsa, uh, and I and I loved it. Do you guys still follow the political scene in Washington and also sports for that matter to the same extent that you did in your playing days? Well, I, I'm, I live around Washington, so I, I follow it quite a bit. And uh, yeah, I follow, I follow sports to some degree. I'm, I'm obviously more involved in college sports right now than pros, but I, you know, I, I watch occasional games and, and professionally, um, but you know, politics is just something that's in your blood. You're just going to continue to watch it. It's the <laughs> ultimate sport, and, uh, and obviously, when you get near an election like this, uh, it's, it's hard not to pay attention. Yeah, I would say uh, I, I follow uh, politics, but not nearly the way I used to. Um, and you know, I still have a few friends that are in Congress, um, and uh, I'll talk to them. I'll, talk to them on occasion but I'm here in Tulsa Oklahoma so I'm pretty far away from it and I, I really don't um, uh, I, I don't follow politics through the paper or really through the news but just through some friends that I have uh, so I'm not a, I'm not a real big follower of politics anyway um, I mean with, without getting into a sort of a lengthy political discussion I, I'm wondering whether you guys see this upcoming presidential race as something that'll be a nail biter or much more wide a victory by either man, because I, I've been watching so many political programs over the past few months, so many prognostications and maps and predictions and analyses, and it ranges from a very, very close race that could go either way um, or it could be much a much wider victory. The the analysis that I've seen, if if it were to be a wider victory, it's usually when they're talking about Biden's chances. But regardless of who you are pulling for, I mean, what do you? How do you see the you know the tr the, the the trend going? Also, I guess seeing the uh, you know the numbers of people showing up at so many polling stations to wait online to vote, whether that clues you in in, in either way, where where things are going to go. Well, I think that's the significant point that you're making. It's just how many Americans have come out. I think COVID has really you know, unleashed a, a real desire to get out and exercise their democratic right. I mean, it's amazing. Almost 60 million people have voted. They think this will be, you know, 150 million in America will vote, which is almost an unprecedented number. So I think that's all good. I mean, it's hard. You can't really predict because you don't know where all those voters are going to go, it's, uh, I would suggest it's probably, the country is pretty closely uh, divided in terms of, uh, you know, people say that we're a 50-50 nation in a lot of respects. So I'm not surprised that our elections don't reflect that. Steve, what do you see down in Tulsa? The, the general uh, memory of Americans is about three and a half years. That you could remember stuff really well for three and a half years because in by four years there's another election and it seems like every election every presidential election that ever occurs this same process goes on but you know everybody's you know uh worried about you know winning the election and 
uh, all that kind of stuff. But uh, uh, in reality, I think every election kind of stages itself like this one does, where nobody knows who's going to win and this guy's going to win or that guy's going to win. And uh, we don't know. And everybody's fearful. Everybody's worried uh, and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, I, I think this is just a, a, another election uh, in our uh, country's history where everybody's saying this is the most important election that we've ever had. And they've said that every four years. Uh, and, you know, I, I think it is important that everybody votes and participates uh, for sure. Uh, but we've had a lot of really important elections in our history and we'll have a lot more going forward. Uh, and this is just another one. Well, Steve, Tom was just mentioning a minute ago about the coronavirus effect, and I'm wondering whether you see any of that where you are. And, and, and for that matter, what is the situation in, in Tulsa? How, how is the state and how is the city and the area coping in terms of the outbreak and containing it? Well, I'm really proud to say that Oklahoma has been one of those states that, uh, you know, was fairly hardly, hard, hard, hard hit uh, initially, uh, has come out of it uh, fairly well. Uh, people are still uh, wearing their masks and uh, being uh, uh, cooperative uh, in terms of doing things for uh, people's safety. And so I've been really proud of, uh, you know, Tulsa and, and, and Oklahoma in general. Um, I think everybody's tired of it. Everybody's ready to get on with the, the next phase of life and get out of this pandemic mode. Uh, but uh, yeah, Tulsa has been very responsive. Oklahoma has been very responsive. Our governor's done, done a great job. Um, but uh, I think people are really tired of it. Yeah, I would echo that. I, in the Washington area, it's been, uh, you know, just people are, uh, are, are fatigued by it. Uh, but it hasn't been, uh, hasn't been as acute as New York. Uh, we spent a lot of time in Maine this summer, which in North Maine, and there's been hardly any cases at all up there. So it's been um, good to get away from it. Um, you know, I mean, we, we know that we'll go through this uh, periodically and, uh, and it's tough on everybody. It's tough on, this is, uh, this is a just tragic, the small businesses and the people that are just really getting hurt by this. And uh, hopefully we'll get a vaccine. It'll be behind us sooner rather than later, so. Tom, when you served in the House, you had quite a few of your uh, athletic, athletic colleagues in office at the same time, and you joked that it was kind of a jock caucus. And I'm wondering what you remember of that, like what kind of connection there was amongst you and whether you actually did things together socially or otherwise fundraising or whether if you were in the same party or, or not. Or, or play play ball together, anything like that that brought you together beyond just the name of the Jock Caucus. That yeah. you... Well, that was it. Actually, that was Sports Illustrated. They actually did a piece and they uh, did a photo on the steps of the Capitol with Mo Udall and Bill Bradley and Jack Kemp and Jim Bunny, who was in my class, and then Ben Niners Campbell. Mm -hmm. uh, but you know, we didn't do much uh, formally with that group. But I will say, when I was in the Congress, I'm sure the same for Steve. The house gym was a place that members used to go down to. And I would play basketball. Uh, you know, we played in the afternoons. And uh, it was the place that I got to know Republicans better than any other place in the House of Representatives. And uh, it just shows you, you know, that 
people tell me the three places they get to know members were on trips abroad, the house gym, and in the prayer breakfasts they had. Those were the only three places where, you know, members had an institutional chance to get together. Now, 30, 40 years ago, members stayed here on weekends. So their families came to Washington, their kids went to school, they got to know each other. And as Jerry Ford used to say, the, air, the airplane, the jet, the jet airplane has kind of destroyed a lot of that camaraderie because people are going back and forth all the time and they don't have that glue, which is important to build bipartisan relationships. So I would say, I would say sports was very integral in helping me connect with a lot of members of Congress. Which guys or, or, or women even on the other side of the aisle, Republican side, did you get to know better because you're playing ball together? Well, I mean, uh, Mike Oxley was, ended up being a good friend and, you know, Mike would come down and play and Rod Chandler, there were a lot of Republicans that would come down and play. Um, just, I could, give you a list of them, but it was always, it was bipartisan. We always, we would have a Republican Democratic game every year, but, but I think that was one of the most uh, important things about the house was that you often don't have a chance to get to know the other side. And if you get to know the other side, it's, you're able to, you're able to work with the other side. And uh, we miss that in our Congress right now because people are flying in and they, they come in on Tuesday and they leave on Thursday. And uh, it's such a crazy schedule that they don't build the institutional relationships. How about you, Steve? Uh, you know, I would say the same thing. I think, you know, having um, the opportunity to, to be with uh, members uh, on both sides on either, you know, trips, or playing basketball, we, we played basketball throughout the time I was uh, in, in Congress too. And uh, it, it really was a time that you just, uh, you, you took off your partisan hat and uh, you just, you just uh, played basketball. And uh, it was very competitive games, but uh, it was very fun and uh, everybody had a good time. And, and you got to know uh, people on the other side of the aisle uh, in a way that you couldn't any other way. Uh, so I, I, I agree with, uh, uh, Tom, that, that uh, having those kind of opportunities uh, is sorely missed today. I mean, what about things like the Congressional Softball League? I mean, where not only would you have the members playing if they had the time and wanted to, but also the staffs can mix. Did you guys, were you guys part of, of that Congressional base, uh, Softball League? Yeah, it no, was. I, actually, mostly my staff did that. I didn't play personally. Hmm. I, I did. We and it was it was it was not softball. It was it was hardball, baseball uh, that we played, and it was just for members, not not uh, staff. And uh, it was it was a very competitive situation. But again, it was one of those things that uh, you know after the game you you'd go uh, have a few drinks or whatever, and and uh, you know rub rub shoulders with uh, the other guys, and uh, it was all for fun, and and we had a great time. And it was very competitive and, and, uh, and always very close. So uh, that was something that I participated in. And it was really kind of uh, one of the signature moments of uh, Congress uh, doing something together. Playing hardball is a metaphor. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. That's, that's Washington, right? I mean, Steve, you were part of a really interesting, I mean, you were also part of 
part of a period of time where there were other athletes playing, but you also had Hall of Famers at the time. You had Bill Bradley was still playing. Tom, you had a fellow Rhodes Scholar, of course, was Bill Bradley as well. I mean, that's kind of, they're each, they're each like unique, you know, subclubs of an already small fraternity of, of athletes in Congress. I mean, there are always a lot of subsets like that. I mean, uh, Steve probably has some of his, his NFL, you know, colleagues, John Runyon and so forth. I actually was a teammate of Bill Bradley's for one year on the Knicks. So mm -hmm. uh, it was funny. We were both on the Knicks and, uh, and uh, got to know each other. And then, you know, the, the Rhodes Scholars would come into Congress on both parties. Uh, there haven't been a lot of those, but uh, actually uh, it is, it's, you know, you do keep in touch. It is a common bond that you, that uh, really connects you. And, you know, I was on the Olympics too. So, mm -hmm. you know, Ben Nighthorse Campbell, we would always talk about the Olympics. So yeah, that was sort of another fraternity that you would belong to. So those were all part of the affiliations of being part of Congress. Right, Ben Nighthorse Campbell served both in the House and Senate and competed. He was a, a judo um, athlete in the Olympics. Yeah. Jack Kemp was always a guy that uh, I looked up to. He, he was a, you know, if you, if you knew Jack Kemp, he was a real uh, uh, affable guy. Yeah, you know, just a guy that, you know, he didn't have any enemies. Uh, he was always working uh, to, 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 to get something pushed across the line. Uh, and he did it in just a real, uh, you know, uh, winsome way. Uh, but uh, Jack was a great guy. And probably he, he as an athlete, uh, rose higher than anybody else in terms of uh, his rank, uh, not only in Congress, but uh, beyond that, uh, under the Bush administration. But uh, he was always kind of, you know, uh, one of my heroes, if, if you will, uh, of, um, you know, of, of, of a football player serving in Congress. He, uh, you know, I, we had a great relationship uh, I had played for Buffalo for uh, in the NBA a little bit, but you know I was redistricted at the end of my career into a Republican district, and I'm campaigning down there one time, and I see that Jack Kemp's coming in to campaign for my opponent. So I sent him a note. He was at HUD. I said, "This is a violation of the Jock Caucus. You will be fined excessively." And he sent back the note. He scribbled on it, "The Jock Caucus lives." And he canceled on my opponent, Wayne Gilchrist. And I said, geez, I, he knew I never could say anything about that. You know, if I could have used it, it would have been powerful to get a Republican cabinet member canceling on a Republican congressman. <laughs> what, what Jack knew, I never could say a word to anybody about it. Because if I could, that would have been a powerful ammunition for a Democrat running against a Republican incumbent. But he knew I, could never, I would never say anything. So... It just shows you some how time relationships work in the Congress. That's a that's a wonderful story. I mean, the idea that he that that, that there really was a code that that he meant a lot to him. It's it's actually a beautiful story, and I'm wondering, you know, to take that to the next step. I mean, can you see anything like that happening today? You know, again with the super sort of uh, drawing of lines and partisanship and almost a zero-sum existence between people in the parties where you can have that sort of, you know, higher higher uh, code than party. 
I would say that generally, I think the Congress back when I was there, and certainly when Steve was there, was had a bigger had a bigger uh, middle ground. In other words, there were more people in the middle. Uh, we've we've become more polarized over time, uh, and uh, so everybody goes to their corners, and there isn't there's less of that comity than before, but. It's not that it doesn't exist. I know there are Republicans and Democrats working together on the Hill today. It's just that the atmosphere is not really conducive for it. Uh, and you know, you've got you've got uh, television, which you know, just everybody kind of reaffirms those sort of partisan instincts, and it it, it becomes very difficult. Uh, but yet, I do think personal relationships still prevail. I, I agree. There, there's a lot of guys that, uh, I mean, uh, I lived in a house on C Street, uh, right, right around the House of Representatives, and uh, we had, you know, two or three Democrats and two or three Republicans living together in the same house and uh, meeting together on Monday nights for uh, a little Bible study or a meal. And uh, so, you know, th that still goes on in Congress, uh, but it is a lot more rare today than it ever has been before. You know, I mean, if you talk about, if, if you think about the idea of getting along, I mean, what you, what you say is kind of a really nice, um, sort of encapsulates what it takes to get along because really it's not just getting along politically, it's getting along personally. And if you're living together, I mean, you have to be able to get along, otherwise it's not going to work out. I know yeah. everybody's got their political demands back in their district. They have to travel, they've got family, but you've also got to, you know, make sure there's food in the fridge and wash the pots and the pans at the end of the day, right? Well, to be honest with you, to be honest with you, I actually think that, you know, when, when people are coming in on a Tuesday, leaving on a Thursday, I really, I don't understand why Congress doesn't operate like state legislatures, give people a stipend. You know, a lot of people stayed in their offices. They would sleep in the house gym. They couldn't, have, they can't afford a second house in Washington. So they spend as little time as possible here because of the budget constraints. And I've never understood why they just don't give them a, a stipend for the days they're in Washington, uh, just because that would allow people to maybe even bring their families here once in a while. Or uh, as I said, back in Jerry Ford's time, they lived in Washington. Their kids went to school together. It developed, there was di different chemistry as a result of that. You know, I'm wondering when, when I think of the parallels between sports and other, other aspects of life, in this case, politics, there are so many profound ones. I mean, you know, it's the idea, of course, when you talk about two political parties in sports, there are two teams on the field at any one time competing against each other, hopefully in a healthy way. But the aspects of teamwork, of rules, abiding by the rules, competing in good faith, um, somebody in charge, you know, in this case, a manager, a coach, a boss in the workplace. I'm wondering whether when you guys served in Congress, having come from the world of sports, whether any of those lessons of sports, any of those sort of experiences and, and the, the, the themes that I mentioned, whether those things you took along with you and set you up for getting along in life and, and, and in Congress. 
Well, I, I know maybe it was just the, the, the time frame that I, I was in Congress, uh, almost eight years, or maybe it was just my you know, at general attitude that I had. Uh, but I, I, never, I never saw the other side as enemies. Uh, I never saw them as opponents. Um, and I never looked at them as you know, evil. Uh, and yet that, that seems to me the way the general Congress is set up today is to um, you know, advocate for your side against their side. And uh, you're, not to, you're not to like those people or even associate with them. And uh, you know, I just think that, that's, um, that's just not the way it was supposed to, to be. Yeah, and I would concur that it's become so, so much more personal. But, you know, I'm sure Steve would uh, concur with this point. A, a cloakroom is like a locker room. When you walk into a cloakroom, you're walking into a room with, you know, members from rural areas, members from inner district, inner city districts, uh, you know, gender differences, uh, political differences. And... You know, as in a locker room, I, I can say I didn't probably get along 100% with all my teammates. I probably, most of them, but there was always tension. And in a locker room, you're, I mean, in a cloakroom, you're not going to get along 100% with everybody. But there are a lot of similarities. And being an athlete, you learn to try to bridge over those differences because you know that you can't go on a field and play if you're going to let that animus and those animosities rule the day. So you had to pull together for the greater good. And that is a lesson from sports. Yeah. How, how are both of you guys and your families staying healthy in these really challenging times? Well, my wife's a doctor, so she's uh, a <laughs> emergency room doctor. So she, uh, making sure every effort that we stay, uh, stay away from this virus as much as possible, which is really the best, best thing you can do. My daughter-in-law is a, a doctor, so I have, to, I have equal help uh, here, at, here, here at home. But uh, no, we, 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 uh, we, we try to keep life uh, in general uh, the way it was uh, as much as we possibly can, but uh, we're still wearing masks and, and uh, being cautious uh, about the coronavirus. Are, are there things that you guys have decided not to do during the during this sort of crisis? Get on an airplane. Mm. I've avoided that because no matter how you you get on it, you're still there's there's risk, and so I haven't been on an airplane since March. So I, I've been on uh, two airplanes, maybe three airplanes. Uh, in that period of time where I would have been on, you know, 30 times. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm sort of uh, uh, cautious about that as well. Well, I, I guess the most important question of all, uh, and a good way to conclude is, have you guys voted? <laughs> <laughs> I, I sent my, my absentee ballot in, in, into Maryland. Uh, so uh, I have a house in Maryland, so I sent it in. Uh, the other day, I, I fully intend to vote when we uh, when we vote on November third. Well, Steve Larton and Tom McMillan, thank you very much for appearing on Hello Cutler's ABC's Athletics Beyond Coronavirus, and hope you and your families stay healthy. Hope the election goes well, and um, and that we meet under under good circumstances. Mm -hmm.
Me too. I look forward to seeing you. Thank you.